But today, uh, I'm going to start by reading Ephesians chapter 1, uh, 15 through 23, because we have another long section. We have a long sentence, but we have a, a long thought, and it's important for us to keep the context of those things in mind as we go through um, and uh, as these things are preached to us over the next few weeks. So I'll, I'll begin reading for us there. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is, the, <clears throat> what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious, glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this word comes to us this morning, and Paul is continuing on in his interaction with uh, the church in Ephesus, and he is giving thanks to God for them on two accounts. And he is doing so by remembering them in his prayers. While we were on our vacation, while we were driving around Asheville, I believe, we saw a bumper sticker that said, thoughts and prayers are useless to dead children. It was a shocking thing. It's, and that's the intent, right? The purpose, is it's, a, it's an anti-gun message, anti-Christian message, anti-many things message. And the, the point of it is that, you know, you can, you can have warm thoughts and, and you can pray all you want, but it doesn't fix this particular issue. It doesn't address that. And that was a, it was a, a poignant thing that I have thought about ever since. Why would someone make a bumper sticker like that other than to make a political statement? What's the ideology behind that? Um, and, of course, the idea is that, that thoughts and prayers, that they are powerless in the face of suffering. They can't prevent tragedies. And are there no real balm to those who suffer? There are no real, no sucker, no help. Is that the way that Paul is praying for the Ephesian church? Is that the way that he views prayer in general? And more to the point, is that the way that we ought to view prayer? That it is a, it's, it's kind of a, a thing that we do because we're, we're supposed to do it. But it doesn't really have any power. 
whenever we have questions like that, we go to the scripture, right? This is, this is our source to know and to understand these things. But what does God say about the nature of prayer? Before I get into our, our uh, short passages today, our, our, our two verses, I wanted to spend a little time discussing this idea of prayer and addressing this cultural concept um, that, that may be rightly founded because um, of an ineffective uh, church that we have in the West. But I want to address that before we get into what Paul says because there are some things that, that we need to, to be thinking about when we get into this next section where Paul is, is expounding on and discussing the things and the ways that he is praying for the Ephesians. So we, we have this sentiment that's expressed that there is no power in prayer, that it doesn't do anything, that it doesn't do any good. It can't, it can't protect children with prayers. Why do we see that? If you go on social media, particularly following some kind of tragedy, and you can see that in, in our own community, following the wake of the tragedy that we had uh, earlier in the week on Thursday, the sentiment that we see echoed over and over again on, on Facebook or even around the water cooler is, we're praying for you. Prayers. I'm praying for you. You have our thoughts and our prayers. And whenever I see these kind of tragedies mentioned on any kind of social media, and I see those kind of sentiments echoed, invariably I see people that I know are outside of Christendom, people that I know they, they don't attend church, that they have no affection for Christ, that they, that they live for their own kingdom, say, our thoughts and prayers are with you. So what does this do? This, this dilutes in the minds of, of our culture what the power of prayer is, what the purpose of it is. And it's reduced to a sentiment. And I'm not being judgmental because I do the same thing. I've had people uh, ask me to pray for something, and I say, yes, I'll pray for it. And then you know what happens? I forget to pray for it. Or I will pray for it for a short period of time, and then I will stop praying for it. Or sometimes I have found myself praying for a thing for a long period of time only to realize I have no idea what this situation is, go is about. You know, I, I prayed for somebody's pregnancy and the kid's like four years old. You know, I, I, it's disconnected from the reality of the situation. And that is not an appropriate attitude to prayer. That kind of prayer that is disconnected from uh, the reality uh, of what prayer is and the reality of uh, the request is ineffective. So that's where this comes from. That's why we see this, this idea that thoughts and prayers are useless to dead children. So I am guilty. Um... I try to be very careful when someone asks me to pray for something to make a very specific, detailed note and to be very attentive to it, but I don't always do that. 
Are we praying in a manner that Paul demonstrates, where he says that he does not cease to give thanks for the Ephesians? Do we, do we address prayer in that way? Or do we say, you know, I've, I think I've prayed enough about that. Um, and we can do that. We can. There are, there are times when it's appropriate to say this, this illness that I've been praying for is and God has worked it out. God has resolved it for whatever way. And we can, we can release those things. But have we disconnected that with the reality of the power of God? So I have a, a few questions that I want to go through and a few things that I want to, to set to frame our message today. And the first one is, why do we pray? Why do we go before God and pray? And this is important. It, it is very important. And we, we read in our, uh, in our statement of faith this morning, one of the things that we're called to do as Christians is to examine ourselves. Uh, if we, we, uh, proclaim that we are reformed in our theology, that means that we are constantly reforming. Not that we are, are changing to meet the trends, but that we are constantly taking what we believe and holding it up in light of the Scripture and saying, is what I believe and what I'm practicing, are these things scriptural? Are these things biblical? So that's, that's very important for us to do. So we ask, why do we pray? The first answer is the answer Cynthia would probably give if I were to ask her. And it's very elemental. It says, because God commands us to do so. And I pick on Cynthia because this is the answer she gives frequently when we ask, why are we to do this thing? And she says, because Scripture says so. And she's absolutely right. And um, we can look in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 through 46. <clears throat> this is Jesus giving com commands to his disciples. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So Jesus is giving a command. He's saying, not only are you to pray, but you're to pray for these people in this way. You're to pray for your enemies. You're pray to pray for those who persecute you. And he's clear in that. Paul in Romans 12, 12 admonishes to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. To rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. Being constant in prayer is a means for us to rejoice in hope, for us to be patient in tribulation. And we'll see that in just a little bit. Uh, Paul again in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Colossians 4, 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we are to... We are to be watchful as we pray. Have you ever prayed for the wrong thing or prayed in the wrong way? Yes. Yes. And we'll, again, we'll, we'll look at, at what happens when we pray. What's the reason for it? But we, we, I bring wrong requests to God all the time. Being commanded by God to do a thing is reason enough, but 
We also have the example of Jesus. Jesus provides an example for us of prayer, and he demonstrates to us how to pray. He demonstrates to us that we ought to pray. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, um, And the rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, being Jesus, departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. What's a, an excuse we give for failing to pray as we ought? I don't have time. Rise early in the morning. Go to a desolate place. Uh, one, a pastor, mentor, and friend of mine, uh, John Cardwell, he gets up at four in the morning and goes into his office and he has a, a sign on his door that he flips from the inside indicating whether he can be bothered or not. And if he's praying... He can't be bothered. He said, if there's a fire, pray for me, but don't disturb me. I think he's serious. But Jesus rises early. In Luke six twelve. we see again, in these days, he, again being Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. All night. Prayer is a thing that we, that we uh, as we come to understand it more, our mind shift uh, changes from, I don't know how someone could pray for an hour. I don't know how that's even possible to understanding that I probably can't address everything in just an hour. But God commands that we pray. Jesus demonstrates it so that we might follow him. Another reason that we should pray is prayer is good for us. We will notice, I believe, everything that God commands us to do and everything that Jesus demonstrates for us to do and follow him in is beneficial for us. Prayer is beneficial for us. It's a very common misconception in the Western church um, that the aim of prayer is to change God's mind or to keep him in the loop on what types of things that we need. And this is an errant and foolish teaching. Prayer doesn't change the mind of God because God does not change. And we can say amen to that. Uh, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Malachi 3.6 for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Could you imagine what would happen if God were to change? I remember, and I've, I've probably said it many times, but I thought it was fascinating that the earth spinning on its axis, were it to change one degree, it would instantly fly apart and be disintegrated. Do we want God to change? No. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Amen. We don't want God to change. We don't want to change the mind of God. It's foolishness for us to think that a, a creature in sinful flesh with limited intellect, with limited wisdom, 
should have any effect on the mind of God. If, we, if God could change his mind, we couldn't trust him for salvation. What if he got fed up with the sin of the world and said, you know, the, uh, the, this, the efficacy of the, the uh, blood of Christ to save sinners, I'm going to retract that. I'm going to change that because your sin is so great. God doesn't change. Our prayer doesn't change God's mind. So this begs the question, and this is what we hear from a, a quasi-secular church. Well, if prayer doesn't change God's mind, what's the point? What good is it to ask him for things if it doesn't change his mind? And that's a, that is the correct question. If we feel like that our prayer changes God's mind, that's the appropriate question to ask. Did God have a plan when he allowed Satan to afflict Job? Obviously. Of course he did. He wanted to shut Satan's mouth. He wanted to vindicate himself before Satan and also to vindicate Job, who he declared as a righteous man. Did Job know any of these plans? No, Job didn't know. What did Job do? Well, he, he railed and he cried and he, he said, well, Lord, uh, try me. I, I want to come before you. I want to come before the judge and plead my case. And he whined and he complained. But God understood and God ordained and God did not relent. He didn't change his mind. But what happened is, Job, through communication with God, learned the heart of God. Where, Job's, where God said, Job, where were you when I made everything? Did you, did you create the mountains? Did you make the oceans? Did you cause any of these things to happen? No, you didn't. And from that, Job learned the sovereignty of God. Job learned trust in God. Job learned that everything that I need, God is ultimately aware of and God is ultimately in command of. Praise be to God. That's what Job learned. So did anything change for Job because of his prayers? Yes, Job changed. Job changed. So we don't, we don't pray to change God's heart and mind. We pray that so ours might be changed. And when, when I discuss this with people, James 5.16 comes. This, this always comes up. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Or the, the, the prayer of the... I can't remember the exact phrasing. The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's what I hear. James 5.16 and the problem that I see with that is I don't see very many righteous people, right? Um, my righteousness is filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. But while, while praying doesn't change God's mind, praying does change things. Things change because of our prayers. Now, that's an interesting thing for us to think on. Does that mean that we are powerful to, to change things? In a sense, but it's not our power. This is the same argument that I think we hear about evangelism. 
If God has ordained before the creation of the world who his elect are, which from scripture we know is the case, then why do we have to share the gospel? And the mystery of the mercy of God is that he chooses us. We are the tool that he chooses to bring salvation to his elect. In the same way, his people are the instrument that he uses to change the world through prayer. This sounds like a a confusing concept, and you know, to, to an extent it is. It's a mystery. Why would a holy God use a broken people for his glory? He uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his will. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's, that's mind-boggling. He uses our prayers to change the world. We should, under no circumstance, reduce the access that we have to the throne of God to a heavenly drive through where we come up and place our order and then pull to the next window and wait for God to reply, for Him to provide what we need. That's ridiculous. A.W. Pink says, Prayer is not designed for the furnishing of God with the knowledge of what we need, but it is designed as a confession to Him of our sense of need. We confess to God what we need because we ought to confess to God that we need. Our heart needs to be constantly reminded that we need God. In every circumstance, in every circumstance, you've probably all seen the, the, the meme or whatever that says, do I need Jesus to get to heaven? And it says, you need Jesus to go to Walmart. And it's true. We need to be constantly reminded because what is the root of our sin? Our pride. When we start to begin, uh, or when we, when we begin to think, I've got this. I can do, I can do this. That is when our pride swallows up all of our wisdom. So we know why we should pray. God tells us to. Jesus modeled it. And it's for our benefit. God uses our prayers to accomplish His will. When do we pray? When should we pray? And we get a hint from our passage today. Paul says that he does not cease to pray for the Ephesians. Prayer for us is a constant communication with God. Why is it set up that way? Well, we can refer to point one, because God said so. God ordained it to be so. God commands us to be constantly in communication with Him. 1 Thessalonians 5, we can look at verses 16 through 18, 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God's will for us in Christ Jesus is that we pray without ceasing. Have you ever seen one of those things? It's, it's a, uh, an electrified ball, and if you touch it, your hair stands on end. 
but then when you let go, your hair kind of fades down. I think of it as kind of that. Whenever we disconnect from the power of God, we, we immediately lose our, our, our radiance. What happened to Moses when he went out from the presence of God with a veiled face because his face was glowing? He, he waited because that power faded. That, that glow faded from him. How eager do you think he was to go back to the presence of God? And this is for us too. We should be eager to be constantly in communication with God. I'm not going to go into a lot of modality, like, should I pray while I'm driving? Should I pray while I'm in the shower? Do I need to lay down on the floor to pray? Do I need to have my hands up? We're not going to go into those things. Uh, We can have those discussions, obviously, but the point is we need to, yes, yes. We need to be constantly in communication with prayer because as soon as I step away from God, I begin to think that I'm something. Mm-hmm. I believe I begin to believe that, you know, I, my, my power is significant. I can do some things. But when I step into the presence of a holy God, I'm reminded, no, I have no power. Apart from Christ, I can do no good. There's no good way in me apart from Christ. So we are told to always be praying. And what's the beautiful part about this? God is always listening. Yeah. The old axiom, if you have a, if you have a, a prayer, if you have a, a problem, give it to God. He's going to be up all night anyway. Psalm 116, verse 2 says, Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Psalm 116.2 I will call on him as long as I live. Have you ever been listening to a small child explain to you about something that they built in Minecraft and your only desire is to run away and flee somewhere where there is no Minecraft or small children? This is not our reality with God. We don't wear him out. Amazingly, when I think on the stupid things that I bring before the Lord at times and the ideas and the sinful things that I, that I lay at the feet of the Lord, why He doesn't destroy me is amazing. Later in Ephesians, Paul admonishes us uh, to pray at all times and he even talks about, uh, even tells the readers what to pray for. If we look at, since we're in Ephesians, if you want to look at Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helm of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." Do we pray for those who are declaring the word of God? Do we pray for other pastors? 
I catch myself complaining about powerless sermons that are being preached every Sunday morning that are opinions and ideas of, of men not rooted in the Word of God. But do I pray for those men? Do I pray for those situations? Do I make it my concern to lift up to God my concern over the situation? So this is, this is how we ought address these things. So we're supposed to pray. We're supposed to do so constantly. Is prayer effective? Does it change things in our lives? And we've kind of discussed that. But I have two, two um, examples from Scripture that, that immediately came to mind for me. Uh, if you want to turn, you can to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And I'll read just 9 through 11 there. But um, this is of Hannah and her, her barrenness, her desire to bear a child. And her pouring out to God that she may have a child, that a son would be born to her. 1 Samuel 1, 9-11 After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed, a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So whom is she praying for here? She's praying for Samuel that isn't even, isn't even born. She's praying for God to give her a son and she will dedicate him to her. Did the, did the birth of Samuel impact the nation of Israel? Yes. He anointed the first two kings. He was instrumental in guiding and held firm the line uh, of the, the holiness of God and God's desire for his people to walk in it. Did God use Hannah's prayer to bring about the life of Samuel? I believe so. I think that's why we have it in Scripture. What changed in Hannah? Obviously, she became pregnant. But her heart was forever changed. Have you ever had somebody tell you that they prayed for you for your salvation? After coming to Christ, I had people come and say, you know, I prayed for you, for your salvation. And that kind of stuck in my mind. But I thought about it anew this week because I thought, did I ever consider that God used their prayer to bring about my salvation? That's a totally different idea. If someone says that they prayed for something to happen in my life and that it happens, I think that they've come alongside me and that's good and we have solidarity. But when someone is praying and because of their prayers, God does something in my life, this is a different thing. This, because then instead of me just having solidarity with other Christians, then I lift praise to God. 
And that's, that's what we ought to do. We ought to direct that praise to God. And this is, as we're about to get to our passage here in Ephesians, this is what Paul says. He doesn't say, Ephesians, you guys are wonderful people. You're doing a great job. You have really kind of got things together. He says, no, I thank God for you on two accounts, for your saving faith and for your practical faith. But we'll get to that in just a moment because I have one more thing. Um, 2 Kings 19, uh, King Hezekiah. For me, this has always been, uh, in, at least in the last few years, it's been a wonderful story. 2 Kings 19, I'll start in verse 14 and read. But um, the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, mocks God. He's, he's gone, run roughshod over the country, taking everything that he wanted, destroying people breaking down all their, their religions, and he says, your God's no different. I'm going to fold you up like a tent. And so he comes, so Hezekiah receives a letter from him to that effect, and this is his response, 2 Kings 19, 14 through 20. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid to waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hand, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. As you have time, I would, I would encourage you to go home and read a beautiful piece of poetry that follows in verses 21 through 28 of 2 Kings 19, and where you see God's answer to this fervent prayer. Hezekiah brings this prayer to God and God says, I will, according to your prayer, I will do as you have asked. I will do this thing. Now, this isn't to say that God is, as R.C. Sproul would say, a cosmic slot machine. That's not what this is. That's not what this says. Um, you also hear that we're two or more together. Are gathered together, you know. Does God answer prayers? Yes, God answers prayers, but the answer could be no. The answer could be later. The answer could be, I've got something much better in store for you. You don't want the thing that you think you want. God always does. God always answers prayers. And 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 when we we talk about, <clears throat> you know, if, if we if we pray for something, God will grant it to us. That is not about making a request, that is about us agreeing with God. That is about us aligning with the will of God or being aligned with the will of God. So let's, 
go ahead now and we'll go into our passage for today. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 and 16. I'll read it again. And I want us to keep this preamble in, in our minds because this is the, the way that Paul, when he says he is praying, this is, this is no small thing. Let's look at our passage. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. Short and sweet, but Paul says so much here. He thanks God on two accounts. First, he thanks God for the saving faith that he has given to the Ephesians. And this is an important point, too. Paul doesn't say, when every head was bowed and every eye was closed, you raised your hand and you accepted Christ. No, Paul says, this faith that God has given you. Paul thanks God for the believing Ephesians. Do we take for granted the salvation of fellow believers? Or do we sincerely thank God for saving them? Are we thankful for the salvation that God brings to us? And that's, I'm not, I love to hear testimonies. I don't believe that they're necessarily the most effective for bringing the gospel to someone, not as effective as the word of God, but I love to hear testimonies because I love to hear how God has worked salvation out in the life of my brothers and sisters. It's, it's, a, it's a praiseworthy thing. When we thank God for salvation in others, we are worshiping Him based on His faithfulness and mercy. Why did Jesus come? What was, what was the point of Jesus coming? For the Son of Man came, came to seek and save that which was lost. Luke 19.10 So we should rejoice in the salvation of others. We should desire it as God desires it. I think it's Spurgeon that says, if you don't have a desire for the lost to be saved, you're probably not saved yourself. That's really powerful. And that should shake us up. And it should make us examine ourselves. Do I have a desire for people who are lost bound for eternal separation from God, do I have a desire for them to be saved? 2 Peter 3.9 Do I have this kind of desire? Does my will align with this? 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Is it my desire? Or when someone who is of the world behaves as a lost person should and is rude to me, do I say, well, you get what you got coming? Thankfully, praise God, we don't get what we deserve. Thankfully, he is patient, not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. This should be our desire. It's not the reality. There are people who are going to perish. 
There are people living in the world today. There are people that we will see today that are going to die in their sin. That's an awful reality, but it is a reality because it's what we all deserve. We all deserve because of our rebellion against God and His holiness. We all deserve that eternal separation. But Paul Paul thanks God for salvation in the Ephesians, which he attributes to God. This is a spoiler alert coming up in a couple weeks. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How are we saved? By faith in Christ. Where does our faith come from? Our faith originates from God. It's not something we muster up. It's a gift. It's a gift. For by grace, which is a gift, you've been saved through faith. So Paul is thankful to God for the salvation of the Ephesians, which he's heard of, right? I have heard, I have heard tell of your faith in Christ. And for that, I give thanks to God. But Paul is also thankful for practical faith. Saving faith and practical faith. The practical faith on the, in the Ephesians is, is what they live out toward all the saints, right? We see that. And, and I think it's always important whenever we see the word all to see who all refers to because all doesn't always mean all. Context is important, right? We have, to, we have to understand who all is. Because of your faith, um, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. But as we look and we examine this word, it is, it is all, as in all believers. Ephesus is a relatively small place in the grand scheme of Christendom, even at this time. But for all the believers, for all the saints, Paul has heard of their faith and their love toward all the saints. Um, are we faith? Are we thankful for saints across the globe? Are we thankful for for other Christians meeting this morning? in Mays, Mason County, in Maysville. We could almost throw a baseball and hit another church having a service right over here. Are we thankful? Are we thankful that, that they're meeting together? It's, it's, it's important that we don't get isolated in our thoughts. It's important that we don't separate our, ourselves from other believers because we have one faith. It's important that we have discernment and, and all those different things, but it is, it is very important that we are thankful and that we love all the believers. Paul saw this in Ephesus. Uh, he heard of a clear love that they have for the saints, and he thanks God for it. So Jesus didn't died just so that we could be spared from hell because if that was for the case we would have went to heaven as soon as we died but uh, we continue on in Ephesians 2.10 it says 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We talked a little earlier about God's uh, means of salvation. How is his gospel to get to people? He has ordained that we be his instruments. How is God to be glorified in the world? Well, we're to walk in such a way that, that people will see us, see our walk, and glorify God. Not glorify us, but glorify God. So we, we are created for works that God set, us, set aside ahead of time that we might walk in them. And this is what the Ephesians are doing. They're, they're living out this walk. Their life is an example of Christ. Paul hears. Paul sees. He sees their faith being played out. So God saves us and God conforms us. And that, the result of that is a life of faithfulness and repentance. Can you imagine how happy it must make Paul to hear this report of the Ephesians? There have been people that I have had some influence in in their lives, in the walk of their, their Christian lives. I go on and not hear from them 15 years later to hear that they are walking upright in, in, in Christ and to hear that they that they love God and they are an ambassador for Christ, that they are sharing the gospel. I'm happy. I'm joyful for that. Not because I had an, an impact on it, but because it's joyful for us to see God working through people, to see the fruit of that. So I, I imagine Paul was, was very happy. He thanks God. He thanks God again, and he worships him for the faith that God has placed in the heart of the Ephesians. For us, as we, we read these two short verses and we think on them, it's important for us to have a reality check. Do you have a saving faith? I think this is probably the third time that I've mentioned Spurgeon today, didn't necessarily do that, but mean to do that, but I've been reading some things lately. One quote that he made is, you may think that you can live fine without Christ, but you cannot afford to die without him. It's, it, it's easy for us to identify tangible things that we can put into our lives that we think are making it better. I mean, we, we pour all these things in. I'm convinced that half the world is walking around in a dopamine-induced trance. Because we, you know, if you get on Facebook and you're scrolling, it's, there's an algorithm that's designed that every few seconds is something that is tied to you based on this mathematical formula that they've put together based on your previous history, things that you've liked and looked at. Every few seconds when you're ready to to turn the app off, something will pop up. Boop! A dopamine hit. That's exactly what it is. That's why you can get up from something on social media and say, how have I sat here for 40 minutes? This is crazy. That's the design. And we can live on those things. 
We can pour into our lives things that please us, things that feel good, but are never satisfied. We can, and we're never satisfied by those things. So what do we do? We look for different things. We look for bigger things. We look for something that, that'll hit harder. It's like a drug. We get accustomed to one thing. We'll do something else. Why do we do that? We were created to worship, not to worship ourselves. We were created to worship an infinite and holy God. But we trade that for, for junk. So, do you have saving faith? This is the most important question you can resolve in your life. Do you have faith in Christ that should you perish today, that you will be with Him? Or are you leaning on your own understanding, acknowledging your own power, and is your plan that when your life ends that you're going to go before God as Job planned to do and lay out your case? It's foolishness. We have no case before God. Without Christ, between us and God, we have no case. Do you have saving faith? Resolve that today. If you do not, and that's something you want to discuss, please come find me. Come find Dale. And if you're here today and you... Yes, I have saving faith. Do you have practical faith? Are you living an isolated life of, of me and Jesus got our own thing going? Or does your life have an outpouring of evidence of the work of God in your life? People that went to high school with me who see me today, if they were to sit here today would be stunned because of the difference. Not because of me, but because of what God has done in my life. Because of the wretch that I was into the wretch that I am today. I'm a different wretch. Praise be to God that when tomorrow comes, by one degree of grace to the next, that I'll be brought even closer but do you have a practical faith? Do you have a faith that prompts you and, and pricks you in your spirit to speak to someone that you know doesn't have the saving faith? Is your desire for the Word of God? Are you eager to carve out some time to go to God in prayer? Do you have a, an outpouring desire to serve, to love God's people? These are the things that I want to leave us with today. These are the things I want us to think on because these are the things that Paul is lifting up to God as important and important enough that he brings them to the Ephesians to say, look, on these two accounts, I pray for you without ceasing. I constantly remember you. I'm constantly thankful that God has saved you. And I'm constantly thankful that your love for the saints is obvious. 
Do you have a saving faith? Do you live a practical faith? Think on those things and let's pray together. Most gracious God, we trust this morning in all that you do, in all of your ways. Father, we acknowledge your sovereignty. We worship you, Lord, because of your goodness. We worship you because you are God. There are no gods before you. All idols are vain, man-made things. And Father, the the worship we, we have for our own meager kingdoms, Father, we pray you would, you would destroy those kingdoms, that you would leave them in ash. So, Father, all that we have is you. Father, I pray that uh, you would draw us to yourself, be that in saving faith, that if there are those here today that do not place their trust in Christ for salvation, that this hour they would repent and follow Christ. And for those of us, Father, whom you have called to yourself, those who you have justified, those who you are sanctifying, I pray you would wake us up, that you would shake us out of any stupor that we have, that any lingering hint of the old man that is clinging to us, Father, we would cast off. And that our desire would be for you. Our desire would be for your word. Our desire would be for obedience. Father, help us. Help us to pray better. Help us to pray more. Help us to learn at your feet how to serve you better how to grow in righteousness, and how to have a mind that desires to lift up the name of Jesus in all areas of our life. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you could, uh, please turn in your hymn book to number 364 and stand as you're able, and we'll sing together, How Firm a Foundation, 364.